Just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. Trigger warning. This episode might contain talk about suicide, CSA, rape, or racism. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and in no way represent the state of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Historical Society, or the Oklahoma State Historic Preservation Office. Welcome to the Musings of an ADD Mind podcast. This is Jack, your host, and I have the ADD Mind. Joining me today is my son, Duncan, and it is a more lighthearted topic. After a month of seriousness, we're going to discuss music, which can also be very serious. Yeah. Our love of it is serious, but we're going to discuss some of our favorite bands uh, or artists and um, why we think you should give them a listen. Duncan, what are the two bands or artists that you are going to be talking about today? So today we are going to talk about Tool and Hot Hot Heat. Okay. Tools are made with hot hot heat. Exactly. Very fitting. And I'm going to be discussing Pink Floyd and Glenn Hansard. And so I think I'm going to let beauty go before age. So I'm going to let Duncan go first. And I'm not sure who he's going to discuss first. Now, we can't play any of the music of these bands because we don't want to be uh, copyright stricken. I mean, I know right now I don't have that many uh, listeners, but still don't want to be copyright stricken. So we will just talk about them, what makes them great, read off some lyrics that we like. You know, mention some songs. So anyway, I yeah. I cede the floor to you, Duncan. Tell us about whoever of those two bands you want to discuss first. Uh, so first, I'm going to talk about Tool. Tool's been around for quite some time at this point. Yes. One of the things that I really love about Tool is their various uh, inspirations on Mm -hmm. their music, and I love the way that they approach music as an art. Right. And what I mean by that is, typically, uh, with modern music, you get uh, the issue where they treat it more so, less like an art, and more of a way to make money. Right. Um, And Tool does not do that. They treat music as an art and they are incredibly deliberate when going through it. Yes. Uh, Which is something I really appreciate. Would I prefer it not take them 12 years to make an album? Of course. But it works out really well. Uh, I don't know if you've listened to their new album. I have. Inoculum. Multiple times. It's phenomenal, isn't it? It is. It is. I felt each song was, you know, each song is like 8, 12 minutes long. And I felt like they did that for every year that we had to wait between albums. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I mean, literally, the New Horizons space probe almost flew from Earth to Pluto in the time it took them to. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Now, of course, I think the first five years of our waiting was legal trouble. Right. But, you know, they're 
there was like another six years after that. But I I do appreciate the level that uh, the level of seriousness that they take music. They right. do treat it as an art and not just a woo music type yeah. thing. They they don't go to make money. They go because they have something they want to say. Right. Which I appreciate. So, as far as the songs I'm going to cover, none of them are from their new album. Uh, okay. That doesn't, like, discount it. Um, I've just listened to these other songs more, a lot longer. Right. <clears throat> so, uh, the first song is probably their most notable, I would say. Mm-hmm. And that is Sober. Yes. And one thing I really appreciate about music and in existence, in its entirety is just how open to interpretation it is. Right. So keep in mind whenever I'm talking about this song, uh, it may not be exactly what the artists had in mind. Right. Um, but I think there's a beauty to that mm-hmm. on how multifaceted a song can be. Right. Yeah. Now there are a lot of songs that can have multiple, you know, meaning. Yeah. Um, so we'll uh we'll just talk a couple of like the uh verses here. Mm-hmm. Uh not too much. I don't want to spend too much time on sober. I'd rather spend that on like 10,000 days. But Right. Uh anyways. Uh so it opens up. There's just a shadow. There's a shadow just behind me, shrouding every step I take, making every promise empty, pointing every finger at me, waiting like a stalking butler. Who upon the finger rests. Murder now the pattern, must we, just because the sun has come. Right. Um, and then the pre-chorus is, Jesus, won't you fucking whistle something but the past and done. Jesus, won't you fucking whistle something but the past and done. Mm-hmm. And then the chorus, why can we not be sober? I just want to start this over. Why can't we drink forever? I just want to start this over. Yeah, the chorus is the thing, surprisingly enough, even though it's clearly stated, where people get wrong. People think a lot of times that the song is about somebody who's in addiction, wanting to get out of addiction, and it's actually the reverse. It's somebody who's gotten out of addiction and wants to get back into it. And Yeah. I think it's because sometimes there are people whose relationships were formed like they got together and they formed, you know, their their relationship while they were in the midst of their addiction. And then when they both get clean, they discover that they don't necessarily have anything in common anymore. Their commonality was their addiction. Yeah. And I kind of think that that might be sort of what the chorus is about. It's about a somebody, you know, who's dating or with somebody and their relationship was based entirely on their addiction. They got clean, and now they don't know each other anymore. And he wants to go back to not being clean to have their relationship back. Yes, I completely agree. Again, most songs are up for interpretation. However, I think the message to this is pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really opens up with uh, the second verse. Uh, it, he talks about, I am just a worthless liar. I am just an imbecile. I will only complicate you, trust in me, and fall as well. 
mm-hmm. will find a center in you. I will chew it up and leave. I will work to elevate you just enough to bring you down. Um, yeah. So that, that's a powerful lyric or line. Yeah. Well, I guess lyric. But yeah. It's very yeah, powerful. It, it really is. And again, I think that really augments that message of I'm a piece of shit. But right. Whenever uh, we're in the throes of our addiction, I'm not. Or at least their you, view of you feel that you're not. Different. Yeah, there. Yeah. A lot of times, the reason people are in addiction is because they have some form of self hatred. Yeah, and then I think it's such a powerful message um, of the struggles that people go through whenever they are sober mm-hmm. after going through addiction for so long. Yeah. No, you're um, right. You have to relearn yourself, and I you think. Do. It's a perspective that, you know, most songs don't really cover. Um, they sort of gloss over it and pretend everything's okay. Um, yeah, no, and staying clean after addiction is is a multi-year um, thing. And people can be clean for, you know, tens of years and fall back into addiction because it just takes, you know, one sort of thing and then, you know, bam, they're right. You know, yeah. right back into it. Well, I mean, the issue with it is your your brain doesn't just forget. Right. Your brain remembers it. So that's the real struggle there. And i i like I like the fact that uh, Tool was so brazen with yeah. their message, talking yeah. about something that people don't. Yeah. Um, no. And I really appreciate that about. Them. I do too. I used to smoke, and that's kind of how I am with. With cigarettes, I'm either a non-smoker or a pack-a-day smoker. There is no in-between. I can't, like, go to a friend's house who's, you know, having people over and drink cocktails and smoke a cigarette. I I know people that are like that. Um, I am not like that. I am either a non-smoker or a pack-a-day smoker. There's no in-between. And, obviously, other drugs are the same way, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I don't think there's a casual heroin user <laughs> I don't think such a thing is possible yeah I just do heroin <laughs> on New Year's Eve that's it if anything color me impressed <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no so yeah no you're right that song is a, a a very powerful song and strangely I've mentioned this to your mom at the end of that song when he's singing um actually now I may be it's sober where at the end of it where he's singing I want what I want I want what I want correct yeah yeah it's so strange because that's like the most sort of you know it's it's not like complex lyrics or anything but the way he's singing it I've always come in like that is the most powerful singing of I want what I want and each time he sings it it gets like more emotional and more powerful yeah (laughs) um um that's another thing I appreciate about Tool. Not only are the instruments incredibly complex, but Maynard in of himself is incredibly complex with the way he sings. Yeah. Um, Taking just a simple lyric and just the same thing repeated several times. And each time it's like, holy shit, there's more to this. Yeah. Um, I, I think that shows a lot of depth. Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely does. Um, this ties ties into that, and I'm, I'll just say this before we switch over to Ten Thousand Days. So, 
if you go on YouTube, there's like this whole type of video called reaction videos where people, you know, watch performances or songs and then you watch them react to it and they've, you know, never heard yeah. that type of music. Well, there's like a subgenre of that that are people that are vocal coaches reacting to performances. And there are probably eight or nine vocal coaches that react to Tool at um, the 1994 Woodstock. Yes. And if you haven't seen that, it's super impressive. Yeah. Well, the thing that blows away every vocal coach is that Maynard James Keener or Keenan sings this most of the song where his one leg is like stretched out way behind him and he's leaned over. Yes. And the other leg is in front of him and his body is pushed forward. And the point that they all make is because you sing and it comes from in your lungs, that position is incredibly difficult to sing from and hold a note. And the fact that he's not only able to do it for like a little bit, but most of the song always blows them away. And and not only is he holding notes, he's belting them out. Yeah. And I think it might be because in high school... Maynard was a wrestler. Yeah. But he also um, is like a a marathon runner and he does uh, triathlons. So I think that, you know, because he does that, you know, type of stuff that requires excellent lungs, you know, you have to have fantastic lungs to wrestle, you know, to obviously to run a marathon, but to, you know, bicycle a long distance and to do the swimming part. And so I think yeah. that. He he almost treats his lungs as you know as an as an instrument, but obviously I think that helps him to be able to do that sort of weird posture and sing from. I I completely agree. And another thing about that concert that I don't think uh, you mentioned or perhaps uh, they mentioned um, during that uh, concert and all the songs. Not only is he in a difficult position as far as footing and all that. He's rocking back and forth. Yeah. And moving, and whenever you watch it, it's almost like a visceral performance, just with how into the song he gets. It's almost as if, like, Maynard no longer exists. Yeah. He is the song. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, you're right. He's he's awesome. Now, you've, you saw Tool live. I sure did. And let me tell you, even as a 50-something-year-old, he still does that. Yeah. That, he doesn't do impressive. it as much, but he still does. I can't, I can't get out of bed without pulling the muscle. <laughs> yeah, right? And he's over there. Um, but, you know, some people are just built that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, he, he's super impressive. And the rest of the band is as well. I'm learning bass, and let me tell you, tool bass lines are... Complex. Insanely difficult. Maybe in a few years I'll get to where I can play them. <laughs> well, there you go. Start out with, I, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm currently learning Hooker with a Penis. Okay. I believe those are <laughs> called gigolos. <laughs> um, yeah. That's, so, that was... <laughs> on to the next song. We're going to talk about 10,000 Days, or mm -hmm. Wings for Mary Part 2. Right. Uh the first part of it, there's not too much to it. He's mainly whispering and 
letting the song build up for the second part. Mm-hmm. However, uh, this song is insanely emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, so the background to this song is this comes uh, a few, I think it's a couple of years after his mother died. Mm-hmm. His mother's name was Mary, and uh, she was paralyzed for roughly 10,000 days, um, wow. which is roughly 20-something years. Mm-hmm. And she was incredibly religious. Maynard is not. Right. Uh, he considers himself spiritual. However, there's a difference between spiritual and religious. Right. Um, so it it's interesting because you can see the phases, like his emotions as he went through her loss. Mm-hmm. Um, the band A Perfect Circle, there's a song called Judas, and that's also about his mother. Uh, her name, Judith Marie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like Judith Marie Keenan. Right. Um, and in that song, he's a lot more angry. Uh, the sorrow is more raw. Right. And whenever sorrow is raw, you're angry. Whereas in this one, it's more somber and recollective. Mm-hmm. Which I think is really nice. So, sort of what I get from the song is him discussing and talking about how he is not religious. He does not believe in, uh, like, Christians as being moral. Right. That being said, she is, she was the pinnacle of what a Christian could be. And they are nothing without her. And that goes into it, and we'll talk about uh, the second verse, which really, uh, we'll we'll do verse one and two. They they really okay talk about it. So we listen to the tales and romanticize how we'd follow the path of the hero, boast about the day when the rivers overrun, how we rise to the height of our halo, listen to the tales as we rationalize our way into the arms of the savior. Feigning all the trials and tribulations, none of us have actually been there. Not like you. And then the second verse, ignorant siblings at the congregation gather around spewing sympathy. Spare me. None of them can even hold a candle up to you. Blinded by choice, these hypocrites won't see. But enough about the collective Judas. Who could deny that you were the one who illuminated your little piece of the divine? And this little light of mine, a gift that you passed on to me, I'm going to let it shine to guide you safely on your way, your way home. Wow. Um, it, it's insanely, insanely powerful. Yeah. He's sitting here talking about how, just how good she was. And right. the chorus really augments that. And I, I think it's uh, kind of funny, but... I really appreciate the sentiment. Yeah. You're the one who can hold your head up high. Shake your fists at the gates, saying, I have come now. Fetch me the spirit, the son, and the father. Tell them their pillar of faith has ascended. It's my time. It's time now. My time now. Give me my, give me my wings. Right. And I, again, I I think you should listen to this song. The 11 minutes and 14 seconds are all incredibly worth it. That's another thing about Tool. They can't have a short song. Short to them is five minutes. 
Yeah. I, um, the only problem is I can't listen to songs that end in 14 seconds. It's part I know. Of my, it's part know. of my anti-14-second religion. <laughs> it, it's such a beautiful song, and I think the outro... The outro is what always really gets me. The chorus and the outro. Daylight dims, mm. leaving cold fluorescence. Difficult to see you in this light. Please forgive this bold suggestion. Should you see your maker's face tonight, look him in the eye, look him in the eye, and tell him, I have never lived a lie, never took a life, but surely saved one. Hallelujah. It's time for you to bring me home. Yeah, that's cool. And yeah, I believe whenever he says, but surely saved one, he's talking about himself. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really know too much about his past, but I think he's talking about himself there. Which, again, says a lot, you know? Well, it's you a personal song, religious. and if it's about his mom, he probably is talking from his yeah. perspective. Yeah, it's probably safe to assume that. Yeah. Um, but I I just, I really appreciate the way that uh, Tool sort of operates. Yeah. You can see who they are at the time. Yeah. Um, while it being technically complex. Right. On that same note, they obviously are not afraid of handing, handling incredibly serious topics. Um, their song Prison Sex is probably one of, I don't know, less than ten songs that deals with uh, CSA, child sexual abuse. And there aren't too many artists that are willing to tackle that subject because it's a harsh subject. Yeah. And who, you know... It has to be incredibly difficult to even formulate, you know, music around that topic. But they were able to do that uh, with, with prison sex. And it, it is an incredibly tough thing. And obviously they have other incredibly serious subjects that they tackle. And a lot of bands aren't, you know, able to do that. You can't no. get past writing songs about partying or something. And then they have, you know, other songs where it is a diss track. Right. Uh, which I appreciate a lot. Like, Hooker with a Penis is a diss track. <laughs> right. Talking shit about uh, people talking shit. Um, right. And I, I really like that. Uh, they also have other songs like Lateralis, which is, what is it? I, I forget uh, the Fabinacci sequence. That's what it's built around. Right. Uh, which is a mathematical formula. Mm-hmm. Uh, which basically goes, um, the first sequence of it is one, one, two, three, five, eight, and then it continues going up. And the Fabinacci sequence leads into like the golden ratio, which is mm -hmm. like the organic spiral and how that's super common in nature. Right. And I, I really like the song because the song is about overanalyzing. Mm -hmm. And. <laughs> It's to, built around the Fabinacci right. sequence and the Golden Spiral. Yeah. So I just think it's really funny that the lyrics to the song are about overanalyzing. Yeah. And then at, at some point, like, you know what? Maybe I should just live in the moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's... Which I, I think is fun. Yeah. Um, if you've never listened to Tool, I hope that our, our discussing just a few of their songs is, will, will make you go and give them a listen. Um, yeah. If you're on a streaming service, they're 
new they're to streaming services, there. surprisingly enough. But yeah, <laughs> they're finally there. You can you yeah. can get there. So go give them a listen. And yeah. um, I'm. You're listening to the musings of an ADD mind podcast. So I'm going to now discuss one of my all-time favorite bands, and that is Pink Floyd. Pink yeah. Floyd, there, there's really like four versions of Pink Floyd. Uh, the original band was made up of Roger Waters, Nick Mason, Sid Barrett, and Richard Wright. And that is the version that got signed um, to their record deal. And they put out their first album, which is called Pipers at the Gates of Dawn. And that one came out in, I believe, 1967. That sounds about right. They, I think they were late 60s. Yeah, no, it came out in August of 1967. And um, they were still, you know, mostly a, a band in England. And it's really funny because they came up with this insane light show. And the reason they came out with it is because they heard that in America they had these insane light shows. And then it turns out that it was like game of telephone. And so the light shows at American concerts weren't what they thought it was. And it had just like, you know, built into <laughs> this myth and they had turned into like this amazing, you know, way better than everyone else. But Sid Barrett, who was their uh, lead singer and guitar player, and he wrote all of their songs, started becoming, like, showing up for gigs unreliable and really sporadic and really out of it. And it turns out that he's part of a percentage of the population that if you do acid, it brings on severe schizophrenia. And so he was dealing with uh, major uh, mental health issues. And so what the band decided they would do is they would bring in somebody who would play guitar and sing live but Sid Barrett would still write all of the music and record on the albums and so they brought in Dave Gilmore because he's the person who taught Sid Barrett how to play guitar so they figured he would be able to play everything and so they were really only a band for probably 6 months or so where they had that five member band and then Sid just sort of the band just kind of moved on without him and he went on to release like two solo albums, but the second solo album, they're both sort of weird. and You can tell that he was having um, some issues. And so for the next several years, Pink Floyd kind of went through this. It's almost like they were learning how to be the Pink Floyd that you get after Dark Side of the Moon. But had they not done um, Adam Hart Mother or Metal or Amagama, they wouldn't have been able to do Dark Side of the Moon. And then they also did, they did a soundtrack to a, a movie. And then they, I think that was Obscured by Clouds. And that's really what sort of pushed them uh, to become like the better band. They became, they really melded their ability to play together. And Roger Waters became like the chief lyricist. And then what happened from Dark Side of the Moon on, every album was almost like a theme album. And so while there are, you know, songs that can be played on the radio, you almost have to listen to the album in its entirety to get the whole meaning of each individual song. Dark Side of the Moon ended up being 
huge. It was in the, I believe it was the top 100 for like 20 years. I mean, with reason. Yeah. Well, I think it's because what happened was, it, you know, it released in 1972. And it was mostly record at that time. And then around 74, music sort of switched to 8-track, which was real brief. And so everybody went and bought it on 8-track. And then it switched to cassette. And so everybody went and bought it on cassette. Because you wanted to have it on whatever format, you know, you were listening to. And then CDs came out. So everybody went and bought it on CDs. And so it just sort of came out at this right time. to. And it's so awesome that, you know, everybody had to have it on every format. And it just sort of kept it on that wave. But Dark I mean, Side of the... definitely speaks merit to the album itself. Because there's plenty of other you know, albums that came out around that time that you don't see that with. Correct. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and Dark Side of the Moon is is really, couldn't have existed if they wouldn't have gone through uh, what they went through with Sid Barrett. Actually, Wish You Were Here in the Wall also are the same way um, because it's Dark Side of the Moon is kind of about Sid Barrett, you know, at the onset of his mental health issues. And then the next album after Dark Side of the Moon is Wish You Were Here. And that's also about Sid, but it's about how they miss Sid. And um, Shine On You Crazy Diamond is, well, they have like parts one, two, and three, but you can never tell where, where they end. And it ends with the Shine On and begins with the Shine On You Crazy Diamond. And then there are three songs in between. And as they were recording Wish You Were Here, <laughs> they came into the studio and there was this guy that had shaved off all of his hair including his eyebrows and he was sort of portly and he was in the uh the sound booth and they couldn't figure out who it was and then he started talking and they realized that it was Sid and they didn't even recognize uh, that it was Sid and it, it apparently was very emotional for the band to see him you know like that and then I imagine yeah and the one thing that I do think is cool is David Gilmore, who ended up really taking control of Pink Floyd at the end. We'll kind of get to that. And he um, he always made sure that Sid got his royalties. Because, you know, it would be easy to be like, well, he's not going to know. And, and, you know, and do the wrong thing and not give him his royalties. But... Um, David Gilmore has always made sure that, you know, Sid Barrett's estate and family. Sid only died in 2005 or something. But he always made sure that he got his royalties. And then they also pushed his solo albums, you know, to help him, uh, which is cool. Some people, you know, wouldn't do something like that. And then after Wish You Were Here, and Wish You Were Here, the song Wish You Were Here is one of my favorite songs. It is an incredible. Incredible song. The guitar playing on there is amazing, and it's just it's just a beautiful song of missing someone. It doesn't even have to mean that the person is you know has passed away or whatever. You know, you can it could be about lost friendship, which in this case the song is actually about. You know, is a lost friendship. But it it is just an incredible song. And then next came Animals, which is also a theme album. I really think that Animals is underappreciated, and it's the one sort of out of the theme albums 
that's different because it's about like corporations and corporate greed and, you know, people trying to censor other people. And it's really weird because it's only five songs. It starts out with Pigs on a Wing, and that song's only like a minute long. And then it goes to Dogs, and Dogs is like a 17 minute long song. And then it goes to Sheep, three different ones, and that's also like a like a 16 minute long song. Not Sheep, sorry, Pigs, three different ones. And then the fourth song is Sheep, another you know, 15 minute long song. And then it ends with Pigs on the Wing Part 2, which is like a minute and 30 seconds long. <laughs> and it, it, yeah, it's all about corporate greed. And it has one of my all time uh, favorite lyrics, which is, it's too late to lose the weight you used to need to throw around. It's, it's a good one. Yeah. I, it, it really is telling you, keep yourself in check. You're, there's going to come a time where you're, how important you think you are now isn't going to mean anything. And you might've destroyed any relationship you had, you know, because you treated people like crap. Yeah. If you've never listened to animals, sit in a room, have yourself an adult beverage, put your headphones on and give it a listen. It's definitely underappreciated. And then of course, the thing that everybody also knows Pink Floyd for, which is the wall. And the wall is a cross between, um, Roger Waters' life and Sid Barrett's life. Um, Roger Waters grew up without a father. His dad died in World War II. And he always sort of had some resentment about that, which I guess I can understand. And then it's about somebody who, as a kid, you know, grew up without a father because he died in World War II. And then he became a rock star. And it's about how life on the road is tough. And you know, you lose relationships with spouses or whatever because you're always on the road doing drugs or whatnot. And then at the same time, then he brings in the what happened with Sid Barrett because the character is going kind of crazy. And the last part of the album is basically the the lead singer is... He has gone crazy, and I guess he's having some sort of fever dream that he's become like this weird fascist rock star thing and then eventually um he kind of gets better but the song comfortably numb comes from the wall and that's that's amazing amazing oh, amazing phenomenal. song yeah just phenomenal yeah and it doesn't have one amazing guitar solo it has two and if you really want to have your mind blown on a guitar solo watch them perform it live on the pulse concert because dave gilmer goes all out it's amazing and then, yeah. And then after the wall, they released the final cut. But the final cut was—it's really almost a Roger Waters solo album. It was made up of leftover songs from the wall. And at that time, the band wasn't talking. They had already kicked Richard Wright out. Dave Gilmour and Roger Waters couldn't record together. They would um, the the engineers and the producers would tell them what the other person wanted to do. And I think that's one of the reasons the fact that the album even came out is amazing when you consider that, you know, two thirds of the band weren't even speaking to each other. And the in-between was the drummer and <laughs> yeah, and the producers and the engineers. And so like Dave would come in and sing it and, you know, do it like several takes or whatever. And then 
Roger would come in the next day and listen to it, and he would either be like this version or this version, have him do this, redo it, not have him change this sort of thing on the guitar, and then he would, then Dave would come in and leave his notes. And then after that, Roger Waters left. And so that was like the third version from Dark Side of the Moon to the final cut. And so that was like the third version, and Roger Waters left and basically thought, well, Pink Floyd is dead. And it probably would have remained dead if Dave Gilmore's solo album that came out in, I think, 1985 would have been a success, but it really wasn't. So Dave decided that he was going to bring Pink Floyd back. And so him and Nick Mason went and recorded Momentary Lapse of Reason. And I guess it was when they toured. I don't think he was on the recording but when they started touring, they brought back Richard Wright. Because now you can basically say, hey, look, it's the three remaining members of Pink Floyd. And so that's what they did. And there's um, a touring out, you know, album of a live concert, um, Delicate Sound of Thunder. And, yeah, you know, awesome. And the way they had set up Pink Floyd after Sid Barrett left was it was like a corporation that had four parts. And as the other band members, ran into like financial issues. They were getting a divorce or the concert tour was the wall almost broken the concert tour. So Dave Gilmore bought the other people's like share. So before he got kicked out of the band, Dave bought Richard Wright's share, which of course then made it easier to fire him from the band because he no longer had a share in the band. Yeah. And then he bought, I think he had bought like half of Nick Mason's share. And I think he had done the same thing with, like, Rogers. I don't know if he bought all of Rogers' share, but I know he had bought some of it. So basically, when Roger Waters left, in terms of, like, the corporation and owning the name Pink Floyd, Dave Gilmore owned two-thirds of it, or maybe even as much as 75%. And so then he went and started recording Momentary Lapse of Reason, and Roger Waters was like, oh, hey, pal, no. And so he sued. And then they were tied up in court for several, several years. And it explains why there are certain songs that when Pink Floyd toured after that, that they couldn't sing live because like ownership sort of went to Roger. So he can sing them in his concert, but Pink Floyd can't. Pink Floyd can only perform like six songs from the wall because even though it's a Pink Floyd album, it was so much done by Roger that he like owns right to do it the whole album live which i saw live incredible concert to see the wall live i never thought oh, i would bet. get an opportunity to do that and then like they both are able to do dark side of the moon and wish you were here and animals and i'm sure dave will never do any songs from the final cut but um it came down with the greatest what is perhaps the greatest legal ruling ever and when Pink Floyd toured, they had like a, you know, like a floating, you know, balloon that could go around the arena that was a flying pig. And Roger was suing that they couldn't use the flying pig because that was his idea. And the rest of the band is like, yeah, but we have all this other stuff. You can't not do that. So the judge ruled that Pink Floyd could continue to use a flying pig, but that it had to be made noticeably male. <laughs> 
I've just always found that funny. I'm sure the judge is like, I can't believe I'm having to rule about having a a, a miniature remote controlled blimp that has to have giant balls on it. <laughs> but that well, is a, in really fact proud illegal. About it. Yeah, that is in fact illegal ruling. <laughs> And then in um, 1980, or not 1980, but then in 1993, I think it is, uh, Pink Floyd came out with um, The Division Bell. And The Division Bell probably is a better album than Momentary Lapse of Reason. But Momentary Lapse of Reason does have one of the better Pink Floyd songs on it, Learning to Fly. And then after that, they came out with a another concert album for it, Pulse. And that was pretty much it in 2009, maybe it was. Maybe it was after that. They came out with something, uh, an album called The Endless River, but it was basically, it's all uh, instrumental, and it was like all extra tracks and everything from when they were recording uh, The Division Bell. And by that time, yeah, by that time, Richard Wright had already passed away. He'd had cancer and passed away. But the four did play one more time together at the Live 8 concert. They only did like six songs. It took a lot to get them to do it. And if you can go and watch it, it's pretty cool because it's the last time, you know, like the core band played together live. You know, which is a shame. I would say that's a big deal. But yeah. Pink Floyd is a band that you really have to go and listen to the whole album. You know, pick some Fridays or something and just sit in a darkened room with your headphones on and give them a listen if you've never listened to Pink Floyd. Yeah. Having uh, grown up on 80s uh, pop rock and Pink Floyd, I can't recommend it more. Yeah. um, When the kids were growing up, when we would travel long distances, I would always put in the CD of the wall and I would. I would sing it and perform it, do all of the various voices and everything. So they, they've had multiple live versions of it. Not good live versions, horrible live versions. <laughs> and it probably haunts their dreams. <laughs> but yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love Pink Floyd. They're phenomenal. Yeah. And it's interesting to learn um, all of the background to it. Which explains, you know, why some albums are a lot better than others. Yeah. It it definitely explains why the final cut is weird. And then also the earlier stuff like Adam Hart Mother and Obscured by Clouds. Although if you ever listen to Uma Guma, there is a song called Several Species of Small Furry Animals Gathered Together in a Cave and Grooving with a Pict. Which is really interesting to listen to. I highly recommend it. It's... It's definitely unique. Yes. <laughs> okay, so that was that was Pink Floyd. And now, Duncan, why don't you introduce us to Hot Hot Heat? All right. So the band that I'm going to cover now is Hot Hot Heat. Uh, I would say they're more on like the indie rock side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of their later albums are a little more pop. I enjoy them because of how upbeat they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also have one of my most favorite lyrics of any song. 
uh, and their song Middle of Nowhere okay, uh, on the album Elevator. So the song or the lyric is, well, maybe I'm a little bit slow or just consistently inconsistent. Mm-hmm. I just really like that. And it resonates with me. I feel like I'm consistently inconsistent or most people are in general. Right. Um, that's really all I got to say about that song. I just really like that lyric. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So uh, consistency can be hard. Yeah. You know, and it's okay why... to be consistently inconsistent. How yeah. it, that's how it is. That's why people don't have perfect sports. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Another song I, I enjoy mainly from, uh, my cousin and I are times of playing uh, Saints Row 2. It's called Let Me In. It's really happy and upbeat, but it's about a guy who can't get over an ex after a bad breakup and stalking them. <laughs> that that always makes for great stalking, always makes for great song content. Yeah, I, I just like the disparity between uh, how upbeat and happy the song is. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, you know, your stereotypical love song. Right. Uh, when in reality, it's just a guy going crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's always, you know, as Pink Floyd has shown, like someone going crazy is great. Yeah. Uh, like the chorus. Let me in. Baby, just let me in. I'm screaming at your door. Just let me in. Just let me in. Yeah. Maybe maybe she should be going to her safe room. Uh, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, again, uh, I recommend listening to it. Uh, if you do, it's entertaining to both listen to the lyrics and not. Mm-hmm. I, I like not knowing what the song beforehand, because you're like, oh, yeah, this is so great and positive. And then you're like, oh, God, this guy's awful. Yeah, he, he's horrible. <laughs> he's not, though. He's a good guy. It's just the song. Right. Um, yeah. Well, you can be a good guy and lead singer of a band and still write a song from the perspective of somebody who's horrible. Exactly. Exactly. Um, another song I like by them, uh, it's one of my favorites, and I'll listen to it whenever I'm feeling kind of down, just because just the way it's uh, structured and stuff, it's very fun and entertaining. Uh, it's called Oh God Damn It. it it's fun because uh, while like indie rock-ish, Mm-hmm. Um, he rhymes a bunch in it in a more traditional sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know. I just like poems. I, I like rhymes. Right. I like whenever songs rhyme. I also like the first verse. Uh, regular exposure to insecticide has caused me to break out in hives. I'm losing weight. I cannot wait till Saturday. Because Saturday, my tax deduction deductions make me function like a blue collar, white collar. I don't know, so I gotta holler. Oh, oh god damn it. I think I've lost it. Oh god damn it. I think I've lost you. And the whole song is kind of like that, where it's just sort of nonsensical things like uh, antioxidants have got me causing accidents because my wine is spiked with pomegranate. If you've got just one, then slam it. (laughs) Just stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, Again... Nothing, like, too serious about the song, but it's just really enjoyable, you know? It's okay for songs not to have uh, deep meanings or any of that. And who knows, maybe it does, and I'm just missing it. Yeah, well, no. I mean, sometimes songs don't have to have deep meanings, you know? Yeah. 
I, I would say that the song Video Killed the Radio Star is probably straightforward and there's not meaning to it. You're telling me that uh, it's not multi-layered? Probably not. Although, ironically Wait. enough, now the the radio star or the or the YouTube star killed the radio, the video star. Or the radio yeah, star. Spotify killed the video star. <laughs> yeah. Um, <you> know. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, I mean, songs don't have to be super complex and, you know, take a 20-minute breakdown on exactly what they're trying to do to be enjoyable. Yeah. Sometimes it's nice to just a song about stuff that's catchy, you know? Yeah. Exactly. And uh, that leads me into my notable mention, which is not at all shallow. Mm -hmm. And it really discusses, or I feel like it's a good highlight of the difference and meaning, you know, what you hear Mm -hmm. and interpret versus what it was actually meant to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the song is by Slipknot. It's Vermilion Part Uh, Mm 2. Vermilion Part 2 is just Vermilion Part 1, but acoustic. Oh. Uh, And it makes it a lot better. Sometimes that does that. Yeah. um, I mean, it's it's the same, you know, Nine Inch Nails hurt versus Johnny Cash hurt. Right. Uh, The lyrics are all the same except for, he says, pile of dirt instead of shit. Right. Uh, It's just a change of pacing, and it makes it better. Well, I don't know if it makes it better. It's different because in one version, it's somebody who has, when you listen to the downward spiral in its entirety, who is suicidal and going crazy that was a drug addict. And in Johnny Cash's version, it's somebody who's at the end of his life and he's regretful of, you know, certain aspects of his life and his relationships with people. You know, that's actually a really good point. And that's also a very wonderful point on the same lyrics, but sung differently, mean a completely separate thing. Right. Um, so I'll discuss a little bit of Vermilion Part Two. The what the song was written as versus what I feel it is uh, are two completely separate things. Mm-hmm. So the song was written from the perspective of a killer and his victim, right? And the killer believing that uh, the victim, you know, is this perfect being and that sort of thing, and then. Killing them because they're not. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, oh, that's, you know, not a light topic. No, no. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a great thing to follow up, oh, God damn it, with. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, in Vermilion Part 2, I view it as something uh, different. So, we'll, we'll talk about uh, the second verse really discusses what I view it as. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is everything to me. The unrequited dream, a song that no one sings, the unattainable. She is a myth that I have to believe in. All I need to make it real is one more reason. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do when she makes me sad. Hmm. Um, so whenever I hear this song, I don't view it as a killer and his victim. I view it as a love that you had as a child or something of the sort. Mm-hmm. And eventually that person grows, but your idea of them doesn't. Right. So you're no longer in love with them. You're in love with the idea of them. Yeah. So to me, the song is more about like recognizing that and sort of getting over that heartache. Yeah, no, that's a very important thing. Um, You can, 
you know, like when you're in junior high or high school or whatever, you can have a crush on somebody because you don't necessarily know them. You can think, man, this person, you know, fantastic or great. And then maybe for whatever reason, the person doesn't become your crush and you, or, you know, you move past that. And you actually start, you know, going out or whatever. And then you discover that person is not what I thought they were. It turns out they could be flat out jerk and view the rest of the world as horrible and they think everybody owes them something or they could be incredibly angry or incredibly controlling or stupid or just normal yeah but it's not what you thought and then you realize that your idea of that person is not what the person was and sometimes the death of the idea of the person is difficult to go through as well it yeah it almost breaks your heart and the bridge of the song I catch in my throat, choke, torn into pieces, I won't. No, I don't want to be this. And so I think it sort of goes into that, like right. dealing with uh, the death of that idea yeah. and going through that heartache. Yeah. And I thought that's what the song was about. It's not. I was, you know, happy that somebody covered that. They didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as we discussed earlier, that's the beauty of, of music and songs is you can get your own meaning from it. And sometimes, you know, the artist will be like, someone will tell them what they thought it meant. And they're like, you know, I, that's not the perspective or what I meant when I wrote it, but that's equally valid. Actually, yeah. I, I can't remember who the artist was, but he'd, he'd written a song and then somebody asked him, does it mean this? And he was like, no, it doesn't, but I think it does now. <laughs> it should. <laughs> so, Yeah. Which sort of leads me to uh, the artist I'm going to discuss now, and, yeah, and that's Glenn know. Hansard. Glenn Hansard is sort of sort of unique. He, I guess, he gets sort of categorized as being folk, but I don't think he's folk. I I didn't get uh, too much of a folk vibe whenever I listened to him. Yeah, it's almost like Irish country with yeah. rock thrown in. Yeah. Glenn Hansard was originally in a band called The Frames. Uh, he's Irish. And well, The Frames are also Irish. And he, um, when he was like, I don't know, 19 or 20 years old, he was in a movie called The Commitments, which is a movie from the 90s. And it is about uh, a group of Irishmen that form a band that sing like 60s Motown music. And it, it's a really, it's a, it's a pretty good movie. Great music. And, then he, you know, then he was in the frames for for several years, and then uh, I can't remember the exact year of, of it, but he came out with basically a a bootleg movie that they filmed in Dublin called Once, and so a lot of scenes were only filmed in one or two takes because they didn't have filming permits, and so they would have to quickly film and leave before the police came, <laughs> <laughs> and so. You know, it was incredibly low budget, and the soundtrack for once is incredible. There's a reason he won an Oscar for best soundtrack from once. And then some uh, Broadway producers decided that once would make a good uh, Broadway musical, and they converted it to that. And then it won, I don't know, all of the Tonys that year. So on your streaming service, you have the option of listening to the movie soundtrack, which is Glenn Hansard and Marquita Urkleva. And then you can get the Broadway version as well. 
And um, they're both valid and worth listening to. I prefer the Glenn Hansard because his emotional state as he sings it is much greater. Because when, when Glenn sings a song, he puts everything he has into that song every time he performs. Every time he performs. It is it's hard to explain the amount of motion. Go, go on YouTube. There are a lot of live concerts of Glenn Hansard singing. And it's incredible. And then you'll also see his guitar, his acoustic guitar, which is called Horse. And he plays so hard that what happens is, over time, he wears a hole at the bottom of the guitar strings, and then above it from his guitar pick hitting the guitar as he's playing. And so all of his guitars are in different states of having the, you know, this this hole forming from him playing, and that's what it's from. He doesn't, like, go and, you know, cut a hole to do that. It's just from him playing, and you can tell by the shape of it. And all of his guitars are in various states of becoming, of looking like that. But the original one was called Horse. I don't know why it's called Horse. That's just what it's called. And then he's, and then after that, he's released several solo albums. They're all really, really good. And I'm just going to read the lyrics to one of his songs. It's one of my favorite songs. Um, it's called My Little Ruin. And the premise of this song is that we all know somebody who's like an amazing person, but they're forever snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. They, yeah. They're always zigging when they should have zagged. And they're always like one step away from their world blowing up or their world is always blowing up. Friends are always coming to help them out. And that's what My Little Ruin is about. So the first lyric is, Come on, my little ruin, won't you open up and let us in? Time has not been kind, but you're still standing here. Leave a light on in your window, won't you let me see a sign? It's going to take more than smoke and mirrors now for me this time. Which when you, you know, repeatedly help somebody, you, you do feel that way sometimes. Yeah. And, and then the next line, or lyric is, Come on, my little sorrow, won't you sing yourself a different song? The melody that you made is now a worn-out sing-along. Everybody's looking at you, but I can't stand to watch. I've seen this scene come and go too much. And then the, uh, and it goes to the chorus, and it's, And oh, how you struggle through the hours, with your sorrow leading the way. And as you stood there among the cowards, you were let, cowards, you were letting them win. But I'm not going to stand aside and watch them tear you up. No, I'm not. Because you're better than they are, and I can't say it enough. And then here's the the thing that's sort of interesting. The next line is almost similar, but the tone changes. And we've all done that, where you're helping somebody, and then they just do the thing that they weren't going to do, and you're like, what? So, you know, and it's like, because you're better than they are, and I can't say it enough. And then it's, that's enough. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And then, and then it goes on to say, um, come on, my little ruin, won't you build yourself back up again? Won't you take the time you were given? You promised it to yourself. You could stand among the best of them if you could hold your own. But no one's going to do it now for you, but you and you alone. And might as well just read the rest of the song now. I've read half of it. <laughs> and so then it's, <laughs> and oh, how you struggle with your power and keep your back tight to the wall. And as you were counted among the cowards, they didn't see you at all. 
Now you're caught on a rising wave, and I can't get you off, but I'm not going to stand aside and watch them tear you up. No, I'm not. Because you're better than they are. You're better than they are. You're better than they are. And I can't say it enough. And then once again, it goes back into, that's enough. What are you doing? Yeah. And then it's, come on, my little ruin. Won't you tell me where the feeling's gone? There's nothing lost between us. You can come back anytime you want. That's just a, a powerful song when you're, even if it's like somebody dealing with addiction and they keep falling back into addiction or, you know, I don't know, maybe somebody, you know, alcohol, you know, I don't know, committing crimes and they keep going back into jail or just, or just other things, you know, just ruin relationships. Cause I know people that things will start going good and it's like they have to self-destruct the relationship. It's just sort of, I mean, yeah, self-sabotage is yeah. a real thing. Yeah. And, and some people just, for whatever reason, they can't help it. Yeah. And, and that song definitely, to me, sums it up when you're like the friend of that person. Yeah. And, you know, I know earlier we were talking about, you know, addiction with sober. And this is almost like the other side of that song. Like, it's the friend of that couple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, honestly, yeah. And, you know, it's just a, it's an incredibly powerful song. And I can't get over, like, the emotion that he sings it with. And Glenn is one of those people that there's almost no difference between him singing it live and the studio version. The song is almost the same in terms of his vocal quality. Because a lot of times you might hear an artist and you hear the album and you think, you know, they're great. Then you hear them live and you're like, what the hell? Is that the same singer? You know, he doesn't he doesn't do anything like that. There's no auto tune in a in a Glenn Hansard song. And he sings them all with just this incredible, ferocious emotion in every song that he sings. It's incredible just to watch him live and to hear his you know, his songs. Another great song is his song This Gift. It's actually on the soundtrack to the Odd Life of Timothy Green. It's another great, you know, song that's that he has. And then Once is, from Once, obviously, is a great song. and I, I just can't, I almost sound like a fangirl. I just can't get over <laughs> you know, how awesome he is when he performs. I, I've seen uh, Glenn Hansard live multiple times. If he comes to the state of Oklahoma to perform a concert, I will be there. The last time he came, he came to Oklahoma City. Uh, it was like general admission, and I went and got in line even though they weren't opening the doors <laughs> until I think it was like 6.30. I was in line at like 1.30 and I was the first <laughs> person. I, I was there for like an hour before someone else came. <laughs> but I was literally right underneath, under the stage. I was leaning on the stage, looking up. Like my neck was sore from looking up. I was, I was that close, uh, which was incredible. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. And if I'm going to do like my honorable mention real quick, it would be Blind Melon. Um, everybody knows Blind Melon for their song No Rain um, because it sort of went viral before viral was a term. The video exploded and it's known because it has B-Girl and she basically is like a, a talent show and she's wearing a B costume and she dances and they laugh her off the stage. And she leaves sad, and she's, like, walking around town, and people are giving her odd looks and everything. And then at the end of the video, she's in this field, and she finds 
other people wearing bee costumes, and they're all dancing, and she found her people, and she goes with them, and it ends, and she's happy. But the actual song is about depression. One of the lines is, I'd like to keep my cheeks dry today. You know, he doesn't understand why sometimes he's not happy when it's not raining. And when you're dealing with depression, life is like that. Yeah. You don't understand why you almost... It's like you get in this rut of seeing everything through cloudy days. And that's kind of what the song is about. He doesn't understand why he can't seem to be happy. And it's much deeper than the video. The video is kind of happy, but the song is actually much deeper. And people miss that because it's strangely... The music in the background is kind of upbeat, but the song isn't. And then they have another song called Galaxy. And the lead singer, Shannon Hoon, was going through some issues. And people thought that because he'd made it big with their first song. And, you know, people thought he should be living and spending money in a certain way. And the whole point of the song is he's not comfortable driving around in a Cadillac. He's comfortable driving around in his 1960-whatever Ford Galaxy. So when he's singing, I'm all at home in my galaxy, he's not talking like the galaxy that I live in. It's the the old Ford Galaxy. And it, you know, mentions a Cadillac and how he's not happy driving that because it's it's not him. He's happier in the other way. And he's not going to live his life as like a fake rock star. He's going to be himself. Now, sadly, Shannon, Moon, the lead singer, had a heroin issue and he did pass away from a heroin overdose. Which really sucks, because he was quite a talented musician, and I feel like the world missed out on what probably could have been some great music from Blind Melon. And like most most bands don't survive the death of a lead singer. No. Well, I mean, you know, bands are a personal thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. If you've... I'm sure everybody's probably heard No Rain, but if you've never heard Galaxy, give it a listen. Phenomenal song. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, I... That was my honorable mention, and I think, Duncan, we should probably go ahead and wrap this up. It, yeah. It's funny. I started out saying, you know, after a month of dealing with serious issues, we were going to do something lighthearted and talk about music, and then it turned out all of the music we talked about had majorly <laughs> serious topics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, you know, there wasn't like bubblegum pop on any of that. You know, there was no love songs. It's all, this is about addiction. This song was about this this song's about someone going crazy this song yeah. is about corporate greed and treating people like shit so yeah, i apologize it turned out that it was not a lighthearted <laughs> podcast it turned out to be serious you know what maybe next time <laughs> yeah we'll we'll have to have a special lighthearted pop issue or episode of music at some point that's right that's right yeah <laughs> Anyway, I appreciate you uh, taking time out of your day to do this with me. Thanks for having me on. It's fun as always. Yeah, it's uh, nice getting to hang out with you, even if it's via the interwebs in a podcast. Yeah. And, And for the record, talking about music and stuff like that is something that Duncan and I have kind of done a lot through the years. Yeah. And other stuff like that. So, you know, once once your kids grow up and have their own life and move away, some of the things that you did when they were teenagers or whatever, you don't get to do anymore. It was nice to get to do this, especially since the last six years with Duncan being in the Air Force, he worked a horrible schedule. 
you know, he would work basically 24 hours a day <laughs> for, yeah. you know, schedule I, for six months. It would like rotate every week. It was like a different, you know, break that 24 hours down to three, eight hour periods. It's been like a week on eat. So even the week that he, you know, wasn't, for the few days that he wasn't working, his sleep schedule was still screwed up because he had to rotate the next thing. So we weren't really able to do this much over the last six years. Yeah. And growing up, we didn't have like the adversarial, father-teen relationship. No, I wouldn't say we did. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. I, I think we're going to sign off now. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to you next week. And remember, try to live your life in a way that would make Mr. Rogers proud. <laughs>